So, hey, have you guys, have you guys heard of the um, body microchip craze? I mean, there's names for it. I, I don't know all the names, but you, you, have you heard about that? I mean, that's actually gotten pretty popular. It's, it's all over the world now. There are nations, Sweden is into this. Sweden has thousands of people who are having these little microchips put into their bodies. In America, we see that a lot with our animals, our pets, right? You know, put them into dogs. Microchips in your body. You ready to sign up? What is, what is the benefit of having these things? Well, one is it tells you what your identity is. Now, presumably, you could do that on your own. But, uh, but I mean, I think it, it's there for other reasons. Like, well, what, if you, what if you had amnesia? What if you had Alzheimer's or something like that? And here's the deal, is it can get you in places. Can you imagine going to work and you're at a big warehouse or whatever and you just do this and the door opens? Or you come home and, you know, you can go up. You don't need to use your door to say, I'm home. Door opens. So it makes things a little bit more convenient that way. Or if, say that you're... You know, you have a, a medical problem. It can tell them what your medical problem is. So, you know, if you, you know, ha have a seizure or something, you can tell them this is what the problem is and this is how to take care of them. Uh, so there's, there's different ideas like this. And, and if your dog runs away, you can track them. Or if somebody kidnaps you, you can be tracked. So are you, you know, you ready for it? You know, I mean, it's, it's becoming very popular. It's kind of the end thing, sort of in vogue. I don't know. It has a downside to it. Here's the downside is it's surgery. Surgery surgery. I mean, they've got to cut you up and they've got to put it in there. And here's the other thing is understand this, that your company or your country, your government can now control you. They can have increased control over your life. They know where you're at at all times. They can begin to, and there's other things they can begin to do. And so there's some concerns about that as well. I want to talk about another craze now. I want to talk about a craze that swept the world approximately A.D. 30 when Jesus Christ died on the cross, rose from the grave, and people recognized they were, sins, uh, they were sinners and they needed a Savior and they surrendered their life to him. And you know what happened is that the Holy Spirit came and lived inside them. He was implanted inside them. They were now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They now had a new identity. Before God, he could see who they really were, that they were people in relationship with him. And now they had special gifts and abilities that they didn't have before that were identified and became part of who they were. And they were now walking with him and serving him, and they now know that they're going to get to heaven. When they get to the gates of heaven, they can open, swing their arm and the gates open because God knows them, because the Holy Spirit is implanted in them, because the Holy Spirit indwells them. Pretty cool. I think it's better. Much better. But here's, here's the problem, is it doesn't require minor surgery. It requires spiritual death. One needs to die to themselves. They need to die before God. But when they come into relationship with him, they have new birth. And everything starts over again. And to the degree that they will follow God, he will guide them and direct them in this life in a way they never thought possible before. This is a lot of what we've been talking about as we've been looking through Romans chapters 5 through 8 in our series called The Power of the Gospel. When the Holy Spirit comes into your life, you have a power that you didn't have before. You have a choice whether you're going to spend time 
talking to God, interacting with him, and allowing that spirit of God to work in your life or whether you're going to try to go on your own. But when you walk with God, there are incredible benefits. And we talked about some of them last week, but we're going to go on and talk about some of the other benefits of the Holy Spirit again this week. But before we do that, I want to remind you about next week. Next week, read Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, because what we're going to talk about is really good stuff. We're going to talk about glorification. Glorification means when you go to heaven. Think about that. When your body is glorified, like Jesus' body was glorified, when your body is resurrected, like his body was resurrected, what will that be like? The Holy Spirit makes that happen, and we're going to look at the process of getting from here to there. That's going to be fun. But this week, we'll just talk about the benefits of the Holy Spirit. Not just talk about it. This is great stuff. You ready to jump into it? It's a few verses here. We'll be looking at Romans chapter 8, and we'll be looking at verses 12 through 17. Let me read this to you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So the benefits of the indwelling Holy Spirit are these, first of all, the victoria, that we live victorious lives, verses 12 through 13. He begins and he says, so then, so he's going back to what he said last week. And remember last week he was saying that there is no, we, there is no longer any condemnation, that we are not condemned, that we are now in a relationship with God, that the Holy Spirit has come to live inside of us. And so now we are going to live with him forever in heaven. And as long as our mind is set on him, he will work in our lives in very special and meaningful ways. What else is there for us, brothers? And brothers would be more literally brothers and sisters. First of all, he says, I want you to understand that you are debtors. You owe something to somebody. Somebody has done something for you. Who is it? He says, it's not the flesh. Now, when he's talking about the flesh, what do we mean? You know, we talk about flesh and blood. Do we mean bodies? No, we don't. Because if we go back to Romans chapter 5 and even 6, we begin to talk about flesh as symbolic of the world sinful, the sinful world system. Stemming back to original sin with Adam. And that's just basically the way we are. There's this, it's a hard thing to really be theologically precise in, but there is, maybe best described as this sinful nature that we have. Within us, there is this tendency to do what sometimes we don't even want to do. And it's just who we are. And that's what we call the flesh. And the flesh is what got us into this mess. So we don't, we're not in debt to the flesh. In fact, if we continue to follow the ways of the flesh, it will lead to death. Now, obviously, we all know that we die physically. But what's interesting here is the context is spiritual, right? He's talking about all these spiritual things. So he's talking about spiritual death. He's talking about spiritual separation from God for eternity in a place called hell. That is the result of living by the flesh. We are not 
in any ways in debt to the flesh. And that's what he's driving home. He says instead, he says it's by the spirit that we put to death the deeds of the body. The spirit kills that old behavior. If you live with him, you will live. And the idea is you will not just live, but you will live spiritually forever. And you will live a life that's full and abundant and meaningful. So we're not in debt to the flesh, we're in debt to the spirit. Because he's given us life. And he's giving us life that's meaningful and powerful and victorious. And we should be excited about that. Now there's something to catch here that we could, we could easily miss. And I want to point it out to you. And it's found in really just a couple words. And the first one is a little word, it's by. It says, for if by the spirit, and then another one is you. You put to death the deeds of the body. Do you see that by and you means we're by the spirit and you, both of us. This involves the spirit and it involves us. Well, why is that such a big deal, Ron? Why he makes such a big deal out of this? Well, there's something to understand here. is because some people try to live the Christian life by the flesh, not by the spirit. It's just the you living it. That gets you in all sorts of trouble because you can never succeed. And people that do that, churches that do that, become very legalistic. It's all about do's and don'ts and what I have to do and what I don't have to do. And we begin writing up all the different things that we have to do to, to feel like we're going to somehow please God. And we always fail and we're, it's just an effort in futility, right? Some of us have been there. I've tried to do it. I, I, much of my early Christian life, I tried living in the flesh. And I can tell you, it just doesn't work. And if you persist in that for a long, long time, you know, eventually it, it becomes clear that you're, you're not even a believer, there's no evidence of the Holy Spirit working in your life. You're trying to live the Christian life only in the flesh and don't even know God. So that's a problem. But you can fall off the horse the other way too. And if you fall off the horse the other way, is you, you aren't living, the you isn't involved here. And it's all by the Spirit. And you say, oh, let the Spirit do it. Now, many of you have used this phrase as I have before, and you don't mean it in this way, but theologically, this phrase is incorrect. You ready? Everybody's going, oh boy, what's he going to, how's he going to ruin my day today? Okay, here it is. Let go and let God is theologically an incorrect statement. Let go and let God because what you're basically saying is, I take no responsibility. It's by the Spirit, but the you is not there. It's just, let God do it. I'm not engaged. You're not taking responsibility. That's, you're, you're basically living in the flesh in a reverse way. God doesn't want that. He wants us working with him. Now, another thing I would say, that I would just say it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a process of working together. It's talking to God and interacting with him. And let's understand this. It's not like we tell God, this is what you're going to do. We don't tell the Holy Spirit, now fill me. Now, you know, we'll pray, God, fill me, please use me. But in the sense that, you're going to give me power right now to do this. You know, we can sometimes be that way, but God will do what he will do in his own timing. And so, for example, the Holy Spirit, even in the Old Testament, came upon Bezalel to build the tabernacle, came upon Samson to defeat the Philistines, came upon later day, uh, Peter to give this remarkable sermon where thousands of people came forward. But what did they do? In none of those cases do we have an example of them saying, God, right now you're going to give me superpower to defeat these enemies. 
God, right now you're going to bring 3,000 people forward. Come on now. Come on. Let's go. We don't tell God that. He doesn't serve us. We serve him. One of the best examples is given in Matthew chapter 10, verses 19 through 20, where Jesus is giving his disciples instructions on how to deal with people uh, who, you know, are persecuting them in the future. He says, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. So I would say when we talk about what does it mean to live by the Spirit and you being part of it, it's mostly just interact. Remember, it's a relationship. You talk to God all the time. You interact with him. You tell him what you're feeling and what your heart is. You ask him for requests. You say, God, please help me in this moment and so forth. But he's the one who delivers. If you are confessing your sins regularly, you're walking with God, talking to him, you're listening to him as you read the Bible and as you unpack it in your life and you memorize it and you hide it in your heart, then you're growing in your relationship with him. Then when those hard times come, when you need him to speak it through you or work through you in some way, he'll do it. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to stress about it. You don't have to do all sorts of things to try to get his attention and win him over. He'll just take care of you. Your job is to walk with him, talk with him, interact with him, enjoy him, enjoy the brothers and sisters in Christ. Do the best you can. Let him take care of the rest. And he'll show up. He does every time. When I think of this, it kind of reminds me when the kids were young, one of the things we used to do, my father did with me and my grandfather did with me, is you ever take the kids in the car? Is this taped? I may be going to be careful here. Okay, well, this is taped, so hopefully I don't get in trouble here, but... Actually, this is, well, there were car seats, though they were always falling over in those days. They hadn't quite perfected them. But, um, but, but we would take the kids and sit them in our lap with the car, with the driver. Okay, is, is this okay? I don't know, man. I may be getting in trouble here. But we'd take them, we'd drive them around. But we wouldn't just drive them. It wasn't like on Highway 99, you know, cruising with my kid. I would do it in the court. I'd just take them around the court and I'd drive around. Nobody seemed to get upset. But the kids, my son really got into it, you know. And they would get in there and I would, I would sit with them and they would drive the car, right? Well, guess what? What would happen if I let go of the steering wheel? That's us trying to live the Christian life by ourselves. I can guarantee you we would have a problem. If the Holy Spirit's not helping us drive, we're in trouble. We're never going to get there. But what would happen if my kid said, I don't want to do that. You drive the car by yourself. Then I'm not participating. That car's not going anywhere. And if it does, it's going off someplace else in somebody else's life. And that's how some of it, that's that go like God. We got to sit there and we got to drive. But be assured that we're not going to wreck. The Holy Spirit's got a hold of it. He's the one who's taking care of us. That's a picture, I think, imperfect as it may be, of the Christian life. We're sitting in God's lap and he's doing the driving. But we have our hands on the wheel and we're helping out. Now let's look at this second part. Receiving the spirit of adoption. Receiving the spirit of adoption. This gets pretty exciting. Now first of all, he says, for, 
for all who are led by the Spirit of God. And the, the natural take is, well, the Spirit of God guides us and directs us in our life. But really, what I believe he's saying here is that if you are led, if your life is consumed by the Spirit, if you, if you are one who walks with the Spirit, you're one who has a relationship with the Spirit. God uses this earlier, and he talks about how he led the nation of Israel. And he says the nation of Israel were his children. And now he's saying essentially the church are his children. If the church is being led by him, if the individuals are being led by him, then they are his children. And he sets us up for what he's going to say. And he says, you haven't received a spirit of slavery that you might be fearful of, but one of adoption. Now, that's pretty exciting stuff, and it really is a comfort to a number of people in this room. Because I know that earlier we talked about the fact in chapter 6 that we are to surrender to God, and he is our master, you know, and he, we are the slaves that we are slaves to his righteousness. We are slaves of righteousness. We almost had mutiny in my small group. There were some people in our small group that were saying, no, no, can't be, that sounds horrible. We're slaves to God, is that, it just doesn't sound right. And we were all saying, yeah, that, but you know what? It bothered Paul too. It bothered Paul so much that he said, remember he, he said, this is just an example, it's just a human example because I don't know how to say it any better. But now we see why he used the example. Because he wants us to understand how low we are next to him. And that we need to be willing to surrender absolutely everything, all of our control, whatever to him, to do whatever he wants. When we come into a relationship with God, we come in as slaves. And he is our master. And when we walk in the door to serve him, the Holy Spirit hands a certificate that says, you are now adopted as my children. On our end, we come in as slaves. On his end, he embraces us as children. And now we are the adopted children of God. And the language here, the idea of adoption, it's the language of the Greek and the Romans where they said, you now have all the rights and privileges of a natural-born child, you are mine. And that is what the God of the universe has done for us. And then he goes on and he explains what that's like. And I, I like really, I like the way Galatians says it. He says it uh, earlier in Galatians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. He says, and because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Amen. Now, Abba, Father gets a lot of press. It, and it's kind of interesting because we say Abba, but we don't always translate the other word. The other word is Patir. So really what this should read is Abba, Patir. Patir, we kind of know what that means. Paternal. It's Greek for father. That's how we get paternal out of patir, which is Greek for father. But what about Abba? What's that all about? And why is that there? I, I want you to understand that this came several millennia before the music group. But you might want to take a chance on God. Put your faith in him. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, you've never been a dancing queen, right? But... <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and if you don't know what that's all about, don't worry. It's really not that important. Um, but Abba um, was a word in another language, and the language is Aramaic. And that language almost doesn't exist anymore. It's a very, very few people speak it anymore. But during the Babylonian Empire, it was a hybrid language that became the language of the empire. And for 70 years, approximately, the Jewish people were uh, deported there, and they came back with that language. So why is that important to us? It's important because the Jewish people would speak in, uh, Hebrew in their synagogues, but otherwise, during this time, in the land of Palestine, what had once been Israel, they would all speak Aramaic, which meant Jesus and his disciples spoke Aramaic to each other. But if they sent that out, they wrote the Bible in Aramaic, only the people of Palestine and a few others would understand it. But most of the Roman Empire spoke Kone Greek. And so they had to speak Greek. So they did, like, like here, you know, you may be, you, maybe you speak Spanish, that's your language. So at home, you speak Spanish. But then when you come to church, you know, everybody speaks English, right? So you're not going to write it in Spanish, you write it in English. You see how that, that concept is? So in that language, you spoke Aramaic, but when you wrote it out for people, you wrote it out in Greek. But in Mark chapter 14, verse 36, Peter, we believe, was telling these stories to his assistant, Mark. And Peter emphasizes that when Jesus prayed at the Garden of Gethsemane, right before his death, Jesus used their Aramaic term, Abba. And he really wants him to put that down, apparently. And so he puts that down. He wants everybody to know that he used the term Abba. It's so important that somebody passed it on, perhaps Barnabas passed on this information to Paul and explained it to him. And Paul passed it on here and it got passed down through the ages. And they've kept this term Abba. It's a very quaint and very intimate term for a father. It's synonymous with patir. Both mean father. And sometimes people uh, incorrectly translate Abba as daddy. It doesn't mean that. It literally means father. But it has this intimate, informal, very personal feel to it. And so in many ways, it's in our culture, it would be sort of like when we would say daddy or papa. I've heard people pray. Have you ever heard people pray that way when they're praying? They pray to God as daddy or Papa. We can do that. We have that kind of personal relationship with him now because he is our adopted father. And we should be that close to him. I don't know about you, but, you know, if you've been a father, man, I love being dad. Being a dad was a lot of fun, especially when the kids were, were little. They, you know, I'd come home and they'd hug and kiss and we'd go out and we'd play and roll in the grass and wrestle and, you know, we'd play soccer and we'd play baseball sometimes and we would eat our meals. We used to always ask the questions, what was the best thing that happened in your day? What was the hardest thing that happened in your day? And we would eat these meals and then we'd watch movies, which, which actually oftentimes had a storyline and not just special effects. Um, and then we would, we would just, you know, hang out with each other. We'd sit on the couch at the end of every day and we'd read the Bible and we'd talk and we'd pray and we'd read through books like Chronicles of Narnia and we'd pray together and sing and go to bed. Those are fun days. Did you know God wants to have that relationship with us? He wants us to wake up in the morning and just tell him how much we love him. He wants us to 
get down on our knees or stretch out on the floor and just symbolically hug him. He wants us to, to laugh with him. You know, there's a famous story that Eric Little, the great um, track star from the movie uh, Chariots of Fire, that he was just a devoted believer and, and missionary, and he was in China during World War II, and he was in a, con- a concentration camp, and the others in the concentration camp said he would go off to spend time with God, and when they looked at him, whenever he was praying, he always had a smile on his face. It's almost like he had a special inside joke with God. We should have that kind of relationship with our Father. Uh, we, should, we should be telling him about our day, the things that were hard, the things that were good. We should be laughing with him. We should be crying with him. We should symbolically see ourselves crawling up into his arms. We should be reading what he has taught us in the Bible and memorizing it and thinking about it. He should be our all in all. He should be our perfect father, our Abba, our Papa, our Daddy. That's the relationship God wants to have with us, and we should want it. I mean, we came in as slaves, and he made us. And he didn't have to. We didn't deserve salvation. He made salvation possible. We, by faith, come into salvation And we should actually be thinking about it. We don't because we know the end of the story. But when we come in, we should be thinking of it. I come in as a slave. Whatever you want, I'm yours. You you owe me nothing. I owe you everything. I'm indebted to you. I'm yours. And God just says, oh, forget it. I just love you so much. You're my child. Come hug me. That is what God wants for us. And that should affect the way we think and live our lives. Now, the last thing he says is that we're heirs of the kingdom. And it's interesting here that you can almost miss this verse at the beginning, verse 16. Uh, It says that the spirit bears witness to us and to our spirit that we're children of God. So it's almost like this. We come to the gates of heaven, and God says, uh, why should I let you in? And the spirit says, because he's saved. And he looks at me, and I say, well, because I'm saved. And then Jesus walks up, and he says, because they're saved. He says, well... In the ancient world, two to three witnesses is what you need to make sure that something's validated. You've got two to three witnesses right there. Come on in. And again, we see this picture, by the way, that we see repeatedly, perhaps more than any other chapter, this description of God, who we are told repeatedly throughout the Bible is one God, one God, one God. And yet we see that God, the, the Father, has the gifts, the deity of a deity. He, he's just like God. We see God the Son. He's just like God. We see God the Holy Spirit. He's just like God. And they're all together. So we have one God who eternally exists as three equal people, as three equal persons in a way that we can't understand. And, and that's just how he does it. And they just they work together in that way, interchangeably. And we see it again here. And so we know that we have the witness of the Godhead that we're saved. So come on in. And when we come in, we find that because we're children, we're heirs. You will inherit usually what you get from your parents, and then your kids will inherit what, you know, from you. Well, if that's true, then what do we get from God? We inherit everything from God. Think of a couple things here. Who, who is the wealthiest person on the earth right now? You throw it out there if you think you know. Who? Some say, I've heard Bezos probably the most lately. At least, you know, that, that's what I've been hearing. I think Mitch told me that, so it's got to be true. Um, but anybody else? 
Well, I, you could say different people, and there may be people we don't know that they keep it secret, but let me tell you what. I don't believe it. You know who's the wealthiest? You are. You're going to inherit everything in heaven. I mean, God lives forever. He doesn't die, so it's not like you ever, you know, it, it, you ever, he dies and he gives it to you. It's just he gives it to you while he's still alive. While he's still alive, you get all of heaven. You're the wealthiest people on the planet. You say, well, I'm saving up to buy my first house. You got a mansion already in heaven. Don't stress too much about it. Whatever you have here, you're going to lose. You're going to go to heaven, and you'll have more than you can imagine. We've talked before about you'll never be invited to the Oval Office. You'll never be invited to Buckingham Palace. You'll never be in those positions of power. But you outrank all of them. If they don't know Jesus, you're a prince and princess of the kingdom of heaven. You are higher than anybody on this planet that doesn't know the Lord. You are going to heaven. You have it all. That should get your attention. Isn't that incredible? That's what he's saying here. And then he ends it. And Paul does this. He can be, he can just spoil things, you know. But he ends it. We get all excited. And then he says, yeah, we're going to have all this. If we suffer, we'll light with him. If we suffer, we're going to be glorified with him. And I'm like, I thought this was all by grace. But I guess we have to do something after all. We have to suffer. Do we? We do. But Paul would say, not by for salvation, by no means. You don't earn your salvation by suffering, but suffering is part of the equation. When you come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, there's going to be victories. And I think about that in my life. And these are the things I normally think of. I normally think of, I preach a sermon and no one falls asleep. That's a victory. I see somebody coming to know the Lord. Wow, that's a victory. I see somebody growing in their relationship. I was able to help them with some crisis in their lives. That's a victory. You know, and we think about those kinds of things, right? But we learned a couple weeks ago when Larry Adams spoke that there's blessing in suffering. God blesses us through our sufferings. Yes. And we've seen that in the past that you know, it's, it's, a, it's evidence if people bear rotten fruit, we say, hmm, do they really know the Lord? They evidently don't because their life, it doesn't, it, there's nothing there to show that there's any joy or peace in their life and so forth. If people have good fruit, we see that there's something different in their life. Here's where you are most effective in your faith. When you are suffering, that's when you can't put on the facade anymore. That's when it becomes real. Is it real or not? doesn't mean that you don't go through your heartbreaks. doesn't mean that you don't have your breakdowns. But do you ultimately come out on the other side? That's when you have your best witnessing opportunity when people see you holding on to Jesus in the midst of your trials. And if you hold on to Jesus through your suffering, then it's evident to all that your relationship with Jesus is real. To some degree, I think we can say that um, it's not possible to enter heaven without going through some degree of hell on earth. Now, Paul gives himself as an example. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul talks about himself, and he talks about how 
he was heartbroken and grieved over people who turned away from the Lord. And he talks about how he was persecuted and how he was beaten and how he was, you know, had gone through all this stress and distress and heartbreak in his life. And he was in prison several times. And he doesn't go on to say, of course, that he was actually beheaded at the end of his life. The Christian life can be tough. You know, sometimes people will picture the Christian life as a perennial party. It's not. The Christian life is more frequently described as warfare. We are in the midst of a war, a spiritual war. On earth, we are in a war. In heaven, we celebrate our victory. That's where the perennial party takes place. Right now, we're in the middle of it. But it doesn't mean that it has to be all gloom and doom. We can have a good time even in the middle of this. I used to talk to my grandfather about his service in World War II. He was a Navy corpsman, and he served in, on the USS New Jersey um, under Bull Halsey during the war. And uh, they are highlighted a little bit in the movie, The Battle the, um, about Midway. My grandfather was in all of that. And uh, he told me this. He said, those were the best days of my life. He said the camaraderie was unbelievable. Most of the time, we were just working, like, like we work in our, our faith. You know, they were doing the things they're supposed to do, the basic stuff, just like we read our Bibles and we pray and we build relationships with one another. And then that stuff with one another was so much fun, like our bunco party coming up, just having fun, enjoying each other. I mean, most of life is like that. Most of warfare is like that. We don't always think about that. We think, oh, it's so hard. A lot of the time is just... Getting your work done, you getting your weapons ready, spending time with each other, building close relationships, hanging on, and, they, and it can't even be a very special, meaningful time. There's humor, there's pranks, there's, there's this great relationship going on. There are skirmishes that come. And the skirmishes, you know, maybe it's a matter of, um, you know, a, a, you're talking to somebody about the Lord, they make fun of you, and then you talk through it, and then maybe they even come to know the Lord. Or maybe there's some other struggle. You're going through some trial in your life. It's not real major, and you work through it, and you're feeling good about it. But my grandfather said there was one part he really didn't like. He said, I hated those bleepity bleep kamikazes. I hated the kamikazes. That was the most frightening thing in my life. And, and I think about that. I think those must have been pretty scary. We have kamikazes in our life, right? We have kamikazes in our life. We have crises in our life. And we don't like the crises. But God will get us through. He will give us the ability to get through them, and we will win the victory in the end, and then we will celebrate forever in heaven. Most of those kamikazes, by the way, will be defeated here on earth. And if they aren't, that means martyrdom and celebration with God in heaven. And by the way, when he's talking about the hardships, he's not just talking about the cross. You know, he's, he's talking about, you know, the problems that we have in our present world. You know, our persecutions, our tensions, and our anxieties. So that's why we're talking about those. Let's look at a couple applications. First of all, are we living a victorious life? First of all, you have to be in a relationship with Jesus. If you're not yet in a relationship with Jesus, come and talk to us because that's the starting point. And then the second place is, is just understanding that you can't do this on your own, and you're not to let go and let God, but you're to... Hang on to God. Have a relationship with him. Let him drive. Let him sit on his lap and let him do the driving with him and be in relationship with him and enjoy him and allow him to show you 
what he will show you. Allow God to, to give through you more than you thought possible. Allow him to love through you more deeply than you thought possible. Allow him to just fill you up and enjoy every moment of the nature around you and the people around you and, and allow him to direct you in all that you do in your life. But that requires, of course, that you are praying. It requires that you are confessing your sins. It requires that you are reading your Bibles. It requires that you have others around you to help you in the process. How does it feel to be adopted? The God of the universe has adopted you. Take some time to tell him how grateful you are. Tell him thank you. Tell him how much you love him. Imagine yourself climbing up into his lap. Sing songs to him. Write something down to him, telling him a letter of love of how much you appreciate him as your daddy and as your papa. And then finally, are we suffering like heirs? Um, when you're heirs, you know, I was thinking heirs don't always suffer, but they do. A lot of times those are the ones people go after, right? They want to hold them kidnap and make money off of them. And it's kind of a weird thing. I was just thinking about this this morning is I think that's one of the reasons we're persecuted, and I don't think that the world even knows that, but I think there's almost this sense of maybe jealousy. There's this sense of there's something with these guys. They have something that I want. I don't know what it is. And they can get upset with that. They don't understand what it is. Um, and that's just part of being the Christian life. So, you know, take courage because these experiences do not mean that you're not walking with the Lord. They could well mean that you are walking with the Lord. More often they do. And if you find yourself saddened by those that don't know Christ, that's, that should be normal. You should be compelled to tell people that don't know Jesus about him. We talk about the oikos, the 8 to 15 people in your life. You should, you should want to love. That should be part of the byproduct of this is that you hurt for people that don't know him and you love them and you care about them and you reach out to them and you build relationships and you bring them to church and you tell them about Jesus. Um, and you should find that your convictions will sometimes offend people no matter how sensitive you give them. And you'll find that before you come to church or come to Bible study, there will be something that is just kind of gnawing at you and all sorts of interruptions and you don't feel like going. And then you go and it all works out. And I think it's no accident. I think there are spiritual forces that are trying to keep you from doing the things that you should do. But take courage and press on. Press on because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So, you know, we have something that's really special here, and we don't want to forget it. Do you know that the church has sometimes been called um, Cinderella with Amnesia? That's a good title for us, Cinderella with Amnesia. We forget who we are. We don't need a body microchip to tell us. We have the Holy Spirit in us. We need to keep our mind on Him, and then we need to regularly remember who we are in Christ, that we are His children that we are his heirs, that the Holy Spirit lives in us, remember what the Holy Spirit has done for us thus far, and look forward to what the Holy Spirit will do in our lives in the future as we surrender to him. We join me in prayer? Father, thank you so much for what you are doing and have done in our lives. We are overwhelmed with joy. Pray that people would come to know you if they don't today, and if they do know you, I pray that they would leave rejoicing in the relationship with you. Pray these things in your name. Amen.